Well, good evening, church. Welcome. Continuing with our midweek devotional series, Close-Ups of Jesus Through the Lens of Mark. Believe it or not, this is part 22, and we're into Mark chapter 11. Two things we're going to look at. We're going to look at uh, Jesus' teaching on prayer, some striking things that Jesus said about prayer, and then we'll look at a confrontation he had again with the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, coming more toward the end of Jesus' life, and you see the plot and the plans and the whole scheme starting to unfold. So let's pick it up. First point, Jesus' teaching on prayer. Mark chapter 11, 20 to 25. Mark eleven twenty. Get a Bible, let's study together just for a little while. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Remember, we studied that just a week or so ago. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. And therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. For if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. I mean, these are really striking words. It, it's, it's, so A, it's almost impossible, according to Jesus, almost impossible to exaggerate the potential and power of believing prayer. And Jesus seems to pick this impossible situation, speaking to a mountain and being thrown into the sea. Why? Why does Jesus pick that kind of an illustration when he talks about prayer? And, and there can't be any other reason but Jesus knows that I, you and I, we, we will face impossible situations, things that look as difficult as that in our own circumstances. And, and not to rule out the power of prayer because what we're praying about seems totally beyond the realm of possibility. I mean, that's just a wonderful promise from Jesus. So, and, and let me say one other thing. You need to take what's said here and you need to mesh, mesh it together, blend it together with what we know Jesus said elsewhere. I mean, you might be reading those words thinking, well, great, I don't have that kind of faith, Pastor Don. But, but remember that Jesus, in another place, Jesus talked about the very same kind of Results, impossible situations being overcome. And he wrapped it up with these words, that if you have faith the size of a grain of mustard seed. So if you just took this passage, you might think, well, boy, you got to have super superhero faith if you're going to expect any kind of an answer to prayer. And there's no denying the importance of trusting in God. But Jesus promises great results, not just from great big huge faith, but from tiny weak faith. Help my unbelief. And Jesus would minister in those situations. Also remember, I'm thinking of James' words, 
There's asking amiss. There's asking in, in, in prayer that is, that is simply a, a catering to our own selfish desires. And, and James says, well, that prayer doesn't work that way. You, you, you uh, weaken prayer. You, you take the strength out of prayer when you do that. But there's no denying. Jesus says prayer is effective. Prayer will work in situations where it looks like nothing else possibly can. God can work through believing prayer. And then right at the end, so all this talk about prayer and the power of prayer and the miraculous response to prayer, and then 25, and 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 whenever you stand praying, so there you are, you're standing there praying for that mountain to be moved. Jesus says, you need to make sure that you're a forgiving person. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And, and it just seems like, like uh, there's faith. It's not just an intellectual thing. Faith, there's a, a moral component to it, a moral aspect. What can go wrong with prayer? Well, James, it can be just selfish. Uh, and Jesus says here, it can come from an unforgiving heart. And so there seem to be those two reminders that kind of uh, blend in with this wonderful promise of the power of, of prayer. Look at the second instance that we're going to study here. Uh, Jesus gets questioned about his authority. It's in verses 27 to 33 of Mark 11. So Mark eleven twenty seven, And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Now, these things, remember what we studied last week. What Jesus did was he, he went into the temple, he drove out the money changers, kicked over their tables, threw them all out of the temple. And you can understand the religious leaders coming saying, so wait a minute, look, who, who gives you the right to do this kind of stuff? By what authority, 28, are you doing these things? Or, or who gave you this authority to do them? 29, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, he's going to reveal by what authority, but he's doing it in a different way. 30, Jesus asked this question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. 31, and they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from man... Well, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What an interesting confrontation you have here. So Mark's mentioned that Jesus, he's approached 27 by the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. It shows that this is really a calculated uh, 
planned event. This, this kind of attack on Jesus. These, these three groups, the priests, the scribes, chief priests, scribes, elders, they actually made up what was known as the Jewish Sanhedrin, the, the official uh, body with all the religious clout in Jerusalem. Given that Jesus had just wiped out the great profitable, crooked, but profitable enterprise that we talked about last week in the temple, they, they naturally, they want to come to Jesus and say, where did you get the authority to do these things? Who gave you the right? After all, Jesus wasn't an officially recognized uh, chief priest in the temple. What gave Jesus the right to do this? And so their question is really designed to sort of put Jesus out of business. That's what they're trying to do here. The actual question is in 1128, but the motive, the motive behind the question is in Mark 12, 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. So, so they, they're afraid of Jesus. Jesus is exposing their crookedness and, and, uh, the way they're making like they're loyal to all of the old covenant, but rejecting the one to whom the old covenant pointed. They reject Jesus, but want to keep all the trimmings of the old covenant. That's, that's the part that Jesus won't tolerate. This isn't just Jesus against organized religion. This is Jesus against the way they're abusing the old covenant by refusing to see its fulfillment in him. And so they're out to get Jesus. They're out to ruin Jesus. And so they come with this, this trick question. If Jesus had answered that his authority came from God, if he said that, then he'd be perceived they could nail him uh, as being guilty of blasphemy against, and that would be against the Roman emperor. And they would have the legal grounds to put him away. We know that's the case because eventually, actually, eventually that's what happened. Look at, look at Matthew. If you have your, your Bible there, flip it to Matthew 26, 62 to 66. This claim to divinity is what actually they nailed Jesus with at the very end. Matthew 26, 62. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Okay, so yes, Jesus is God. 65, then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do you need? You now have heard his testimony. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. So this is what they're trying to nail Jesus with, with this question. If Jesus says he's God, they will nail him for blasphemy. If Jesus said that that his authority just came from men, what gives you the right to do this in the temple? 
That's what they're asking Jesus. If he says, well, I'm God, they've got him on blasphemy. If he says his authority just came from men, he would certainly forfeit the approval of of the crowd. I mean, there were oodles of self-proclaimed prophets and teachers around, and Jesus would just be written off as another part of the religious machinery. And so this is where they catch Jesus. Where, where do you get your authority? God or man? Now, Jesus, in his response, it's more than just a stall tactic. Look at it again in 29 and 30. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now, it's not that Jesus felt confused or rattled or is trying to buy time or say something cute. In, in answering, in answering his question properly, these religious leaders would find the correct answer to their question about his authority. So, so why does Jesus answer a question with a question? Well, his, his tactic is actually the same as theirs. They were trying to force Jesus to confess his own doom with his answer, and Jesus is trying to force them to justify their rejection of him and his ministry by their answer to his question. And so Jesus asked them, now I'm on uh, B, to B. Jesus intentionally questions them about John the Baptist. Look at 30 to 32. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they sense some things up. They're not just going to answer. They go, wait a minute. And they get together in a little huddle. They said, 31, if we say from heaven, John's baptism was from heaven, he will say to them, why did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? Well, they were afraid of the people, for the people all held that John really was a prophet. So if John's baptism, meaning his whole ministry, the things he taught, if it was from God, then all the people and the spiritual leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, they all should have listened to him. And John clearly pointed to and validated Jesus Christ as the Messiah. You see that in Matthew eleven seven to 10. And as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Third time. What then did you go out to see? Now notice, a prophet, yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. And now Jesus ties John's identity with his own identity as the Messiah, quoting the Old Testament. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. So they can see now 
the, Jesus asking this question, he points out what John the Baptist said about him. And so they might not want to say John was from God because if they say John's baptism, his message was from God, then they have to admit who Jesus really is. So they're not likely to want to go down that road. So they might just say, well, John's baptism was merely of men. But if they do that, they lose credibility with all the people because the people clearly took John to be a prophet of God, a forerunner to the Messiah. Luke actually points out how deep their fear of the crowd went in Luke 20, verse 6. The same account, but Luke gives some detail. If we say from man, look at all of the people will stone us to death. Wow. For they are convinced that John's a prophet. And so Jesus isn't avoiding their question. Not really. He's forcing them to deal with it in a way that would force them, the religious leaders, to acknowledge who Jesus is. It would make them answer their own question. Either way, in grace or in judgment, they're playing this game and Jesus wants to show them that their commitment to who Jesus is, it's not just an intellectual issue. It's a deeper issue than that. It is the greatest moral choice confronting them. Jesus is... Uh, Here's the application. To this day, Jesus isn't rejected for intellectual reasons. I mean, the New Testament talks about it. People reject Jesus because they love darkness rather than light. And so this is what, this is not just a little game here. This is what Jesus wants to expose in these religious leaders. See, I want to wrap up with this. How people become incapable of recognizing Jesus. Look at their, look at their, their words in verse 33. Mark eleven thirty-three. So they answered Jesus. So Jesus says, John's baptism. From God or from man? They answered Jesus, we do not know. Can't answer that. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So these experts, these are the religious leaders of the day. And they have the nerve just to tell Jesus, uh, we, we can't answer your question. We don't know. We don't know. And in a sense, in a sense, I know there's this blind religious game, but in a sense, they're, they're telling the truth. I mean, they knew what the correct answer was, but they're in a box. They're unable to give the correct answer because they're rejecting the light, the light of God in Jesus Christ. There's, there's a kind of hardness of heart that's settling in. They probably don't see it themselves yet, but that's what Jesus is exposing in them and in all who reject the gospel and the truth about Jesus Christ established by his death and his resurrection from the dead? When I see what's happening here, here are the words that I think about. We studied them weeks and weeks ago in Mark's gospel. Mark 4, 24 and 25. 
And he said to them, this is Jesus now. The parable of the sower and the seed. As he wraps up, he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. Okay. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. 25 of Mark 4. For to the one who has, more will be given. Now look at these words. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Who's all these religious leaders? They know the truth and they come and they say, oh, sorry, Jesus, we can't answer that. We're not going to play our hand like that. We can't, we can't bring ourselves to openly admit what's going on here. They're conniving with Jesus. And Jesus, I, I think what you see here, they, they can't, they can't bring themselves to see the light. Their rejection, and I think of those words, for to the one who has, more will be given. From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And that, that applies, like across the board, there's this principle. Whenever God speaks, whenever God speaks to me, whenever God speaks to you, through, through um, his word, through the Spirit, your devotions, times in church, conscience. Whenever, whenever God speaks about some area of, forget for a minute about uh, the one who's an atheist who just rejects Jesus, but even in our own hearts as followers of Jesus, you know, whenever there's a hesitation, whenever there's a, whenever there's a rejection of the truth that the Lord brings to our heart, and we, and we back off and don't yield to it. It's only the first steps of rejection that are in our control. After that, another process sets to work. It's, it's frightening. Now there's a positive side I'm going to close with, but I'm just, just this caution here. The will to reject divine truth is only mine initially. And then even, even what he has, the lights start to go out. Things get taken away, drawn back. The opposite, of course, is true as well. Walking, walking in the light. Obeying Jesus is not always easy and it's not always our initial response, our reflex response, but every response to the light that says, not my will, but yours. Every time I yield, every time my heart stays Freshly repentant. Remember the series we did on repentance. Every time I just start, however reluctant I might be and weak I might be, but I start just walking in the light, what Jesus wants, what happens is more gets given. More light shines. Life starts to grow and multiply in ways that I couldn't see it initially. So, so both ways for these religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, Jesus, we don't know. Uh, we can't go down the road of acknowledging who you are and the, and the lights start to go out. Only the first steps of rejection are yours after that bondage sets in. And the opposite is true as well. Walking in the light, honoring the words of Jesus, listening to the Holy Spirit. Whatever steps you think are weak and faltering, go, do, obey, yield. And what happens is more light, 
more strength and the joy of the Lord increases in your heart. Those are just great accounts from the life of Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, how we thank you that we have the opportunity to to just step by step walk with our Lord, beholding the glory of our Lord, are changed, transformed from one degree of glory to another. Let that just be ongoing in my heart, in our hearts at Cedarview Community Church. Oh, how we thank you for your word. Let the Holy Spirit uh, multiply it, grow it in all of our hearts together. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You'll notice something a little bit different this week. I'm going to, um, Sunday morning, there's just a theme from Romans. We've been doing Romans on Sunday night, and I guess I'm switching them around this Sunday. In the morning, I want to look at, at Romans. It's just such an important truth about a popular misconception in the body of Christ. If we just ignore all these doctrinal differences, wouldn't there be more unity in the church? That's what Paul deals with in the text we are at in Romans. And then Sunday night, I'll get back in Philippians. We're wrapping up the book in a couple of weeks. So we'll be studying Philippians Sunday night at 6.30. God bless you, church. Love one another. Stay in the word.